0: It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.
1: Coming up on episode number 45 of Sports Day Plus. At 645, where are we at in society? I have more evidence that Gen Z is not as cool as they think they are. At 6.15, it is the first of a two-segment chat with Paul Wadlington of Inside Texas and the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast discussing Quinn Ewer's return, Saban stepping down, and more from college football, including Texas not being as buttoned up with NIL as I assumed them to be. And a mere seconds. What a 24 hours with Saban and Belichick both out of a job. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at CourtesyWave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Boy, what a crazy news cycle this has been over the last 24 hours now. Or a little bit more than 24 hours, I should say. It was already going to be a busy day on yesterday's show before Nick Saban decided to retire as the head football coach at Alabama. Shortly after that, but not in time for this show, Bill Belichick reports started to surface that he was done in New England. Pete Carroll had essentially been reassigned by the Seahawks earlier in the day. Today we get Quinn Ewers announcing he's coming back to Texas. Not breaking news per se in terms of it surprising everybody like the Saban announcement, but still Good to get an official word on something that we all felt pretty strongly about. And it's pretty much rendered anything else going on over the last 24 to 48 hours moots. I mean, we talked about Bo Davis going to LSU yesterday. That almost felt like an afterthought, though, after the Saban news broke. Much less to have Saban and Belichick both leaving the positions that established them as goats for their respective levels of football as head coaches. It's pretty wild. It does seem like Bill Belichick will end up someplace else next season. Nick Saban, he's probably going to get paid handsomely to be an analyst. You would have to assume for ESPN, just considering the control that ESPN has over college football for the foreseeable future. But Nick Saban likely not going to be coaching anyplace else anytime soon. Maybe he gets that itch. He scratches the itch by coaching a Spring League team like Bob Stoops has for the last few years. The, what is it, the Dallas Renegades, the Arlington Renegades? I don't remember what they're called. I just know that Bob Stoops is the coach there and even won a championship a couple seasons ago. Good for Bob on that one. But well, Nick Saban is stepping down and in the process creating. I don't know if it's a void in college football, but opening things up a little bit more because for a long time now, we tend to pencil Alabama in as one of the four teams playing in that college football playoff. And with the playoff expanding from four to 12 next year, I think you could probably write that prediction in pin most years with Nick Saban as Alabama's head football coach. But he's not the coach now. Dan Lanning earlier today turned down the job. That was the first name that was really surfacing With regards to Saban's replacement. But he is perfectly happy at Oregon. Why would he not be? They've got resources. They've got Nike. They're about to start up in the Big Ten next football season. And I think a lot of the coaches that you're hearing as possible replacements don't make a lot of sense because they would be leaving really good situations in the process. I know some people are worried right now that Steve Sarkeesian could take over for Saban at Alabama. That's a big undertaking, and he's got things rolling along here. How willing is he going to be to have to follow Nick Saban's footsteps in Tuscaloosa? It's up to Chris Del Conte and the Texas Brass to maybe accelerate the extension talks that have been going on since the Longhorn season came to an end with the loss to Washington and New Orleans two Mondays ago, but he's about to be paid handsomely. And it feels like he is in not just a comfortable spot, but a fit that is really good for him and his family as well. Kirby Smart doesn't make sense. Why would he leave Georgia? Mike Norvell is probably the first name that I hear on the list of possible replacements that does make sense. Because he just had an exceptional season for Florida State, and Florida State is stuck in the ACC right now. With no obvious way out, Mike Norvell realizes that he's playing pretty far behind the eight ball just in terms of money that his school is earning to play football in the Atlantic Coast Conference versus jumping to Alabama where you have resources. You have the pedigree of the Alabama program. I think Norvell is a pretty solid coach too. So if I'm giving a prediction on the next Alabama coach right now, it is going to be Mike Norvell. From Florida State. Bill Belichick retiring is less of a surprise. It's been a weird couple of years for Belichick. Really a weird, what, three to four seasons? I forget how long ago Tom Brady retired at this point. But since Tom Brady retired, things have started to go downhill for Belichick. And I don't think Tom Brady should receive all the credit for the Patriots' successes for the near 20 years that he and Belichick were together. He gets a lot of it, though, but Bill Belichick was hugely important for a defense that played disciplined, hard-nosed football for all those years. But we started to see some of those things slip over the last couple of seasons. The defense was still pretty good, but the discipline was falling off on top of the fact that they became a complete mess offensively which is partially Bill Belichick's fault. Didn't really commit to a play caller on offense last season. Brings Bill O'Brien in this season to lead the offense. But there was an issue with Mac Jones at quarterback. That guy's body language made Jay Cutler look like a good leader on the field in terms of how he was reacting to things play to play. And ultimately, it was a crapshoot at quarterback for them this year. Bailey Zappi starting games. And even though the Patriots looked better over the last month of the season, interestingly, right after the report surfaced that this would be it for him in New England, all of a sudden they win a game, potentially jeopardizing a top three spot and the ability to get one of those three quarterbacks at the very top. Once the season ended for them, you hear reports of Belichick would be willing to give up GM duties, but it was too little too late for Robert Kraft and New England. They realize that it's time to move on. Just like... With Alabama fans, I hope for Alabama fans, who knows with those degens? but you know New England people wish Bill, Bill Belichick nothing but the best and are eternally grateful for the successes that they have gotten to enjoy going all the way back to that first championship in 2001, 2002. There are odds on Bill Belichick's next coaching gig. Unlike Saban, who it doesn't feel like he's going to be back anywhere anytime soon as a coach, Bill Belichick is very likely going to be coaching the NFL next season. Although, Vegas does have odds that he is not coaching an NFL team next year. The best odds right now, the Atlanta Falcons. Not coaching an NFL team. The uh, Falcons' odds are plus 150, by the way. Actually, the best odds are for not coaching an NFL team. Plus 75 for not coaching an NFL team next year. Maybe he takes the season off. Resets and then goes someplace else. The Chargers, currently at plus 400. For a long time, people thought it would be the Chargers, but that is no longer the case, according to Vegas. They have the Chargers at third best odds right now after not coaching an NFL team and then the Falcons. Commanders at plus 500. Any other NFL team gets plus 800. Those other NFL teams that are possibilities, the Titans, the Panthers, the Giants, the Jets, and the Saints. As far as who takes over for Belichick in New England, Mike Vrabel makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. But we're just going to have to wait to find that one out. Vrabel surprisingly fired by the Titans just a couple of days ago. It's been a couple of bad years in Tennessee, but Mike Vrabel is a really good coach. And I think that would be a quality replacement for New England. I think you would see them turn things around relatively quickly with Mike Vrabel at the helm. All right, coming up, we get into the big piece of Longhorn news from today. That would be Quinn Ewers announcing he's returning to school for one more year, as well as thoughts on Nick Saban with my friend Paul Wadlington of Inside Texas and the Everyone Gets a Trophy
0: podcast. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.
1: Paul Wadlington is a regular contributor at InsideTexas.com, as well as the Inside Texas YouTube channel. And more than that, he's a buddy of mine who I haven't spoken with in way too long. Paul, always a pleasure. How are you doing today, man?
0: Hey, I'm doing great. And uh, amen to that sentiment. We haven't talked in a while, so I'm glad we can catch up.
1: Absolutely, especially considering that we are in the midst of one of the busiest 24-hour sports news cycles in the history of man with both Saban and Belichick stepping uh, stepping down from their current gigs. and Then you have Longhorn-specific news, everything from Bo Davis going to LSU, Quinn Ewers coming back next year, and more. Let's start with Nick Saban because the Bill Belichick news is not as surprising. There had been some rumors that this would be it for him in New England, and he may very well be coaching another NFL team next season. But for Saban to retire like he did, uh, why do you think he did uh, decide to retire right now, Paul?
0: I think his legacy is assured. Seven national titles, uh, 199 and 23 at Bama. He's had more NFL first-round draft picks than losses <laughs> <laughs> at Alabama. My God. Uh, I mean, you could go on and on. It's he's the goat, and uh, he's also 72 years old, and he just bought a 19 million dollar house in Florida on the beach. So. I think uh, he was going to retire at some time, and why not now? I mean, his legacy is assured. He's filthy rich. He's still young enough to enjoy his family and you know, pursue uh, his other interests, whatever they might be. Probably doesn't have many, but he has a chance to cultivate and develop some interests. And, uh, look, I mean, he, he needed to retire at some point, And you know, he's 72 years old. I don't think many people ask you know if if your local insurance salesman retires at seventy two no one wrings their hands and says, "What does this mean you know what's the real story like the story is he's assured his legacy he's he's really rich he's taking care of his family and he's he's ready to enjoy retirement
1: not that it would have spoiled his legacy had he gone another five years and not won a championship, but his job has also gotten much more difficult in the last few years with the changing landscape of n i l and the transfer portal and Many more schools have access to top-flight talent now that Alabama used to pretty much just get who they wanted. They could cherry-pick their five-star players. It's not so easy at this point, though.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I kind of would push back on that. I, that seems to be the, the conventional wisdom. And the, the truth is Nick Saban's success is defined by his adaptability. I mean, he's the most adaptable coach in, in the history of college football. Uh, I mean, at least from a blue chip program perspective. So, consider this: you know, he's rehauled and, and rethought his entire approach to football, both on offense and defense, in his time at Alabama. And, and that's why he's the only college football coach in history to win a national title in three different decades. And think of the evolution of football. Think of the evolution of his teams. You know, the the, the team that beat Texas for the national title uh, wouldn't have done that if Colton stayed healthy. But. uh, <laughs> The team that beat was, was murder ball, right? Gigantic defense, 225-pound safeties, 260-pound linebackers, a 350-pound nose tackle. The, the, the ends were 320. I mean, that was you know, Nick Saban bully ball. And then on the other side of the ball on offense, you ran the ball, you ran the ball, you ran the ball. And then when there's nine in the box, you let Greg McElroy throw, right? I mean, Greg McElroy won the national title against Texas throwing for 60 yards. Flash forward a few years when the spread adoption comes and all that Saban's completely rehauled his defense, completely rehauled the personnel, his approach, his schemes. And he basically came out and said, Hey, I'm a defensive guy, but offense now wins games. I'm going to try to outscore people. I'm going to hire Lane Kiffin. I'm going to hire Steve Sarkeesian. And we're going to set all sorts of NCAA football records for passing. And we're going to become the premier destination for wide receivers and quarterbacks. So, You know this whole thing of well, NIL chased him out, or you know, like no. The fact is, when NIL came out, Saban wasn't a huge fan. And you know what he immediately did? Established a very impressive NIL network at Alabama. In fact, they've done a better job with it than Texas by by a significant mile. So, you know, what Saban likes or doesn't like doesn't affect how he actually goes about coaching. Saban's not a huge portal guy uh, in terms of just his preferences. He prefers to grow him at home at Alabama. Guess what he did immediately when the portal became uh, something available to him. He wouldn't got Jameer Gibbs. He wouldn't got multiple starters from the portal and he would have continued to do so. So I I just, this, this sort of narrative of, Oh, he had to get out because football's changing. Nick Saban is the reason football changed (laughs) over the last 30 years. He's been the prime motivating force of that change. Or when he's felt the change, he's immediately shifted his approach. So uh, look, he didn't win seven national titles because he's inflexible and incapable of adaptation. In fact, I think his defining characteristic is his ability to adapt.
1: Those are all great points. And I agree with a lot of what you said, but I do also wonder if a lot of that adaptability, because it is off the field is so much out of his control now, but you just said that They've got a better NIL slash collective program than Texas does right now. That surprises me to hear because Texas has a top-notch program. At least that was uh, my outside take of things. How is Alabama's program better than Texas right now?
0: Well, there's multiple teams with a superior NIL um, collective than Texas. Um, the, the Texas Athletic Department and, and NIL are not aligned. Mm. Um, if you're an Alabama season ticket holder, you get weekly updates in your email about nil asking for donations to nil uh you get stories of the athletes who benefit from nil hey because of nil i was able to get my younger sister out of a really bad school because of nil my mom i got her out of a bad neighborhood now she lives in a a nicer house and i don't worry about her she's safe Um, alabama and several schools in the sec are completely married and aligned to nil uh the texas ad is not Um, if you're a big fundraiser if you're a big well, first of all, if you're a fundraiser for Texas in the athletic department, you don't mention NIL. You, you view it as a competitor. Uh, you know, you talk to wealthy alums from Texas who get pitched on capital projects or scholarships or different endowments and things related to the AD. You know, the, the fourth refurbishment of the volleyball coaches' offices in the last six years, the kinds of stuff they do. Uh, they don't mention the word NIL. So uh, that's completely different from several schools whether it's Oregon, Auburn, Alabama, Ole Miss, LSU, uh, those schools and the ADs embrace it because they know if they don't, they're dead.
1: So whose fault, of that is, whose fault is that on the Longhorn side of things, or is it uh, something that is pretty much shared by everybody, donors and uh, those looking for those funds alike?
0: Uh, well, we have a head of the athletic department, So, I mean, you know, look, some donors aren't on board with NIL. They don't like it. Uh, they, it feels unseemly. Also, there's no legacy to it, right? If, if you build a building, if you get a practice facility named after you, it lives forever. Uh, NIL is, is a little bit more fungible. It's not permanent. But, uh, you know, the, what I'm telling you is the truth. Uh, you know, Texas One does a very good job. No criticism of those folks. And if you, if you care about the product on the field, which is the actual athlete, Um, NIL contributions are the thing that that's the single greatest determinant in terms of resources. Uh, Facilities and all that is fine. But actually, after past a certain point of donations to facilities and all that sort of stuff, uh, it's really just make work projects, you know, you're not actually tangibly improving that product. Uh, You know, the, the better use of your money would be NIL.
1: But Texas continues to be competitive on the high school recruiting trail and the transfer portal and keeping guys around here that they want to keep around here. So is this really surfacing in some of those secondary sports? And I know Texas baseball fans, sorry, KD, are going to get, be upset with me for referring to baseball, softball, basketball as secondary sports. Is that where you really see that effect of things not being properly aligned? Because everything seems okay on the football side.
0: Well, everything seems okay because there's one or two prominent wealthy alumni who have taken on all the burden. Wow. And they're tired and they're fed up and it's going to stop soon. And Texas fans are going to be in for a a significant wake up call if they don't find other alums, particularly the everyday alum, right? Successful Texas grads who contribute $15, $20 a month. If enough of them do that, you can fund NIL entirely just from that. You don't even need large donors, uh, but that's not happening. So yeah, no, in fact, the secondary sports at Texas, as you call them, uh, are actually doing okay with NIL and doing okay with that kind of stuff, but their, their needs aren't as, you know, as substantial. Uh, It's actually football that on a, on a perk, like there, there's not an existing fund of money for our coaches. They're having to go and approach the same one or two folks, really like a handful of people and saying, Hey, if we want to keep this guy, this is what we need. And those guys are either doing it themselves or passing the hat to their buddies and and getting it done. But there is a time and these people are very frustrated. And and that time may be coming soon where uh, they decide that they're out. And unless someone fills that gap, Texas is going to be in for a wake up call.
1: Well, this really changes the assumption of uh, what I, how I think you're going to answer this next question. Then what do you think the chances are that Steve Sarkeesian leaves Texas for Alabama?
0: Slim or none. I I don't think they're interested. Uh, I, I think, He's happy here. I think he knows what he's got. I also think he understands that this is a leverage point in his negotiation, not just salary in terms of his contract extension, but also committing to NIL uh, on an on a, a athletic department level, the way that the Auburns, the Alabamas, the LSUs, the Oregons <clears throat> have committed. And uh, if that happens, which I think Sark has the leverage to make that happen, I, I think uh, he's in a great situation. Because if you can if you can explain to Texas fans that all of the money that we raise and you know, you see we're the most profitable athletic department, and all that stuff, once you explain to them that none of that is going to NIL and that it's actually our job to assume that burden, if you want to see good football, if you want to see good basketball, baseball, et cetera, then I think Texas will step up to the plate. But No one has taken a a lead or taken any measures who's in authority to explain that. Because, you know, frankly, if if you have this huge budget and you've got this massive AD department and you're trying to fund your capital projects, you, uh, your fundraisers, you NIL as a competitor.
1: He is Paul Wadlington of InsideTexas.com and the Inside Texas YouTube channel dropping knowledge bombs on this show today. Coming up, we will talk about Quinn Ewers returning to Texas for at least one more season and more from the Longhorn football side of things right here on Sports
0: Day Plus. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.
1: Back for one more segment with Paul Wadlington of InsideTexas.com and the Inside Texas YouTube channel. Spent last segment talking about Nick Saban and just the overall state of texas and uh, what they're doing within il or what they're not doing within il within the athletics department as far as some good news is concerned paul quinn ewers made an announcement earlier today that a lot of us were expecting and that is he is returning to the longhorns for at least one more season now there are some people out there who really wanted the clock to continue ticking for arch manning in terms of him being this team starting full quarterback for next season That's just foolish talk, though. Quinn Ewers coming back for one more year is a great thing for this program, correct?
0: Yeah. Third-year quarterbacks in Sark's system uh, tend to make a big step. They tend to flourish. And I think Quinn will do the same. I also think he can still grow developmentally. I think, look, I think part of this decision was, you know, personal and part of, you know, consulting with his family. But also you're consulting with NFL draft people. And you're getting sober assessments of where you'd sit And I think they understand that the best thing Quinn can do to develop his game is return and then also have a big year off season. Uh, And, you know, particularly strength and conditioning, you know, Quinn did lose weight and that's great. However, he is pretty slight and he doesn't have probably enough muscle and that's not only for durability, but also pocket presence and your ability to be, to be sort of, you know, brush off contact in the pocket so I think, you know, he would be well-served not only just from watching film and, and growing that aspect of his game and throwing, but also getting in the weight room and getting under a squat bar and eating some food and putting on a little weight, uh, but this time, good weight, not necessarily, you know, chicken fingers and beer.
1: Yeah, and I think his, his footwork also needs a little bit more work too. We saw steps in the right direction, no pun intended there, this season, but we also saw some clumsiness in the pocket still. And I know you just mentioned that, lower body strength and core strength will certainly help him shrug off pressure at times, but so will knowing where he needs to be stepping to buy himself that extra split second to then make a throw with that NFL caliber arm.
0: 100%. I I agree totally. And in fact, you know, Aaron Rodgers. I don't know if you, if you go back and review his scouting reports or even watch him at Cal, uh, he was considered to have an above average arm. Mm. And if he, got strong. <laughs> he got really strong and he gained about twenty pounds, a lot of it in his lower body. Same for Drew Brees, by the way. Uh and that really unlocked their arm strength. And in part because it increased their stability in the pocket. So yep. yes, footwork, absolutely. But I also think, you know, balance, we tend to think of balance as sort of like related to your dexterity and agility. Balance is actually a function of strength. You know, there's a reason gymnasts have big old strong legs. And thighs. Uh, that's how they have that balance to stick the landing. Uh, and, and you know, it's it's kind of like Barry Sanders. Pretty good balance, right? People forget Barry. Swann, Barry Sanders was a powerlifter, and he could squat like 550 and deadlift 600. He was really strong. And so that's where a lot of that balance comes from. I think it would actually help his arm strength. And and frankly, if you look at the NFL, Trey, the dominant quarterbacks are really big guys. Uh, you, you don't even, I don't think we even think of Patrick Mahomes that way. Patrick's, Patrick Mahomes is 6'3", 230. Yeah. You know, so that's not even getting into Josh Allen and Justin Herbert and you know, Jalen Hurts, who are just these really big, strong guys. And it helps your durability. It helps your efficacy. It also helps your arm. It makes you a better thrower.
1: David Benda also announced that he's coming back to Texas next season. That wasn't a given. I don't know if he had NFL hopes for uh, this offseason, but there was a chance that he followed Jeff Choate to Nevada. I guess that's still a possibility after spring ball. But uh, considering that there is some uncertainty at linebacker right now, it's great to get a guy back who was arguably the best linebacker of the bunch down the stretch for this program this last season.
0: Yeah, so I think David returning is great. Uh, Look, he's been a late bloomer. I think the light came on a little later in his career. Uh, but I thought he gave us really good snaps, and I think he's only going to improve. Uh, he's also a really mature guy. Uh, he's senior. He's been there, done that. He's a good culture enforcer. I just think it's a great return all around, and, and I think your instinct that it's being a little too underplayed is is, is right. I think that's a good guy that you want to bring back and try to create some consistency and constancy because. You know that defense is gonna is gonna take some pretty big losses, particularly up front. And uh, you want to have some guys like David Benda, who are a, a sort of reasoned, voice of experience, and they kind of know what they're doing. Uh, so that's a, that's a good return for Texas.
1: A couple days ago, your colleague Eric Nalin said that he expects Anthony Hill to step in for Jalen Ford's vacated position because Jalen Ford is in fact going pro now. Uh, that seems like it's an experiment that's bound to go well, considering just everything that Anthony Hill showed as a true freshman still some concerns that he needs to develop as a a guy who drops into coverage at times but considering that David uh that Jalen Ford had uh, more than 10 tackles for a loss this season it seems like Anthony Hill can at least get that if not more next season
0: I agree I think I mean Anthony Hill blew me away as a true freshman linebacker that's a very difficult job for a freshman particularly in modern football with the number of drops and responsibilities you have and you know, different run fits, you know, it's not just old school football where everyone's gap blocking and, you know, Hey, I read the guard and I've got this gap. I mean, it's got a lot more complicated than that. And Anthony Hill obviously is got a high football IQ. And I think he's got a pretty high level of physical ability. So I think the the interesting thing will be teaching him more of a traditional off the ball linebacker role while also not losing what makes them so special, which is that first step and that ability to rush the passer.
1: Well, Texas initially withstood LSU's efforts to lure Bo Davis back to his alma mater. That was a week ago. Uh, Yesterday, Bo Davis actually decided to change course and go to LSU. He's going to coach the defensive line there like he has here at Texas. Also gets a chance to coach his son, I guess, for his season. His son is... Essentially going to be a walk-on. I'm not sure what his son is going to be. He didn't even play ball this last year with an injury. But I totally respect his decision and wish him nothing but the best. How big of a loss is this for Steve Sarkeesian's staff?
0: It's a loss. You know, I think Bo did a really good job. Uh, He's a good developmental coach. uh, Above average to good recruiter. Uh, I think the good news is that Texas is at the point, and Steve Sarkeesian's networked enough, that we're going to get a good replacement. And, you know, there's a couple of old... Texas alums who are very good defensive line coaches, not to mention some of the other more established names that are out there. So whoever Texas gets will be a good replacement. I think one thing that might be missed slightly is that Bo Davis was a guy in the room with a lot of skins on the wall and a lot of experience. And he was one of the people on the defensive staff who might offer some challenge or some different perspectives to Pete Klikowski's approaches. And I think that might be missed. So, you know, I think that's something that in the offseason, Texas is going to have to look at kind of more holistically.
1: If Texas could have done one thing differently schematically to try and beat Washington a week and a half ago, what do you think they could have done that would have led to a victory in that semifinal matchup?
0: Wow. Well, I I. I... I'm too verbose or uh, saw too many things to probably limit it to one thing. Trey, I'm sorry. Uh, you could say not fumble twice in the third quarter, I guess, if you want a succinct answer. Uh, but I'll go with, uh, frankly have a defensive game plan. Yeah. I was, I was disappointed in what Texas rolled out there with a month of preparation. It it looked like a game plan that you'd get from an NFL team who played Sunday night and had a quick Thursday turnaround. Hmm. So you know you're just trying to get a couple of things in and you know make your team aware of hey this guy gets this ball in this spot and other than that let's go play ball. Uh, that's kind of what it felt like and uh, I was not impressed with the game plan on multiple levels and you saw the contrast with what Michigan did with a week of prep for Washington and I think that was evident and particularly if you any of you were able to watch the all 22 film, it was uh, it was a little bit like watching an NFL defense, and then, you know, and then contrasting it to a, a high school JV defense conceptually. So uh, that's something that I have a little bit of a problem with. Now, Michigan had better personnel overall, but uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about their deployment. I'm talking about the ways that they attacked Washington and the ways they negated some of the things that Washington wants to do just, just by their scheme. And uh, it's, it's sort of like we almost didn't try. And uh, that, was, that was odd, and it was disappointing to me.
1: Are you confident that Steve Sarkeesian and his staff are going to be able to sustain the success from 2023 in year one in the SEC next season?
0: Yeah, I think that's the big question. Um, in fact, I, I wrote an article about it on Inside Texas uh, and also had a recent podcast about it on the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast that I do uh, discussing this idea. And so I think people see five and seven to eight and five to 12 and two. So the next natural step must be what? 16-0, 17-0, right? <laughs> I, I think it's more likely that we go sideways or take a slight step back. And then in 2025, that's when it can be real interesting if some things come along the way, I think. But that said, you've got the portal. You've got off-season development. You know, one thing that's been really encouraging about Sark and his staff is that you've seen players get better at, at, under his tutelage. And so there's guys, you know, we're not even thinking of right now, the Jeray Bledsoe's, the Jamon Taps. You know, I think we all know Malik Muhammad and Anthony Hill, what they're capable of and what they could be with some more time. But there's some guys that are, we're not talking about or thinking about that in the course of six to nine months could just become a different ball player altogether. And that's what's, that's what's so exciting about an upward program trajectory. So I think we're going to have a good introductory year in the SEC, And I think the long-term trajectory of the program is in really good hands. But, you know, we're losing a lot of dudes to the draft. And, you know, I'm not sure we're quite at Georgia-Alabama level where you can lose 10 dudes to the NFL draft and not lose a beat. I think, you know, we're going to have to replace some pretty significant players. And, uh, you know, I'm curious to follow in the offseason and see how well we do it.
1: He is Paul Wadlington. Check him out through the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast at com, the Inside Texas YouTube channel. And I think for the first time this season, actually for the second time this season, because we're counting that preseason chat as a conversation on uh, this very program. Paul, thank you as always for the time. Great catching up, man.
0: Hey, Trey. My pleasure. Anytime. Hook him.
1: Coming up in Where Are We At In Society, we have more evidence that Gen Z is not as cool as they think they are. You did not come up with born-again virginity, nor is your language still relevant to younger generations. Welcome to adulthood, y'all. It's coming up next on Sports Day Plus on 1027
0: ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.
1: Coming up, it's where we at in society. First, though, I needed to let you know about my friend, Brian Hummel. The website is hummel.com realtor.com and whether you're looking to buy a new home or maybe you are looking to see how much your home is worth look no further than brian hummel your trusted austin realtor with realty one group prosper brian is more than just a realtor he's a full service expert overseeing your entire transaction from start to finish he'll lead you through each step of the buying or selling process the questions answered and details explained in plain english With over two decades in Austin, Brian has witnessed the dynamic growth and evolution of the Central Texas market, making him your invaluable resource for buying, selling, and investing. Plus, as a certified real estate negotiator, Brian brings a strategic and skillful approach to bargaining. He secures the best deals, whether it's getting the highest price for a seller or the most favorable terms for a buyer. When you choose Brian Hummel as your realtor, you're not just hiring a real estate expert, you're gaining a trusted partner committed to your success been interesting to be here in Central Texas over the last year because we've actually seen the housing market cool off, relatively speaking. But guess what? Signs are pointing to that changing fast. It's actually a good time for buyers and sellers right now, which is why you should contact Brian today if you're either of those things at 512-619-1347. That's 619-1347. Or log on to his website at HummelRealtor.com. That's H-U-M-M-E-L-Realtor.com. Ryan Hummel, the Realty One, the one you need. It is the final segment of today's show, which means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right. It is your regular look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will bring you a story that provides a sense of optimism, has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out, but sadly, today is not that day. Today's Where Are We At stories, well, they begin with a focus on Gen Z. That's right. You may know a Gen Z-er. You may be a parent of a general Zer. Gen Z is somebody who was born in the late 1990s all the way to 2010 or so, so pretty much late 20s to, let's call it 14 years old, late 20s to 14 years old, my kids just miss out on that one, but I know plenty of you do have kids in this category and you get it, just like every younger generation, they think they know a heck of a lot more than they do and they have their cool lingo when they're kids, when they're high schoolers, when they're college age, but eventually that falls out of fashion as well. And there are several areas where Gen Z is receiving a rude wake-up call, especially those who are in early adulthood now. You know what the generation after Gen Z is? Apparently, it's Gen Alpha. I only know that because of this article. that has to do with Gen Alpha kids criticizing the slang terms of Gen Z, saying this word is no longer in, it is out, this is what you need to be using now instead in some cases. This comes from where else? TikTok. It's where Gen Z, Gen Alpha, and way too many other people reside these days, or at least spend way too much of their focus and attention. Well, a Gen Zer named Liv educated her followers last week with a lesson about slang terms that are in versus out with the help from her Gen Alpha little sister and a three-minute clip from January 3rd that already has 34 million views. And now it gets attention from this radio show on a random sports station in Austin, Texas. By random, I mean, 102.7 ESPN. So some of the terms that are now out according to this TikTok video. The term fam, which often refers to close friends or homies. But the Gen Alpha kid in the video Thought that fam means family. That's what I thought too. Apparently, I'm cool like Jen Alpha now. She said that people use bro instead of fam now. Bro instead of fam. You know what? That makes sense as the dad of two Gen Alpha kids, the older of whom, tries to look and sound cool and maybe a little bit older than she is. She calls me bro from time to time and I'm like, don't bro me. You're my kid. Dad me, but don't bro me. I'm not your bro, I'm your dad. Another Gen Z term that is out, and I'm glad this one is gone. I hate this acronym. BFF means best friends forever for anybody who's been living under a rock for the last 10 plus years. But Gen Alpha no longer uses BFF. Instead, they say BSF in text and whatnot. B-S-F. And he guesses on what B-S-F means? It makes no sense. Until you consider what it does mean, I guess. Best friend is what that's slang for. B-S-F. That's more syllables than best friend, Gen Alpha. Just say best friend. Or maybe even go with bestie. But apparently they put the S in there to differentiate between boyfriend and best friend. Again, I'm going to suggest bestie because BSF is just more work than you need. Pop off. Any idea what pop off means? A comment often seen under friends' social media posts, pop off, girl, or go off. Well, according to Gen Alpha, that is cringy. Instead, You should try hyping your friends up, according to this Gen Alpha person on the video, with the phrase, you ate that, you ate that. Like you just ate a bag of chips or a BLT or something. You ate that. That's the replacement for Pop-Off. You ate that? That doesn't even make sense. Pop-Off is idiotic, I understand, but it makes more sense than you ate that. Boy, you ate that. Bro, you ate that. You ate that. I didn't eat anything. I'm just commenting on social media here. I didn't. Eat. Oh my goodness, this is somehow getting worse. Bay, which I've always known as one person referring to their significant other. Let's say Bay, and I didn't realize this was the this was an acronym. I always thought it was short for baby. Bay stands for before anyone else. And it was a popular pet name with many Gen Zers and millennials. But Gen Alpha says the term is now a no-go. They don't even give an alternative for that. They just say no more Bay. I'm okay with that. Bay does sound a little bit forced. So does Boo, by the way. We can get, go ahead and get rid of both of those right now. And Gen Alpha, let's go ahead and get rid of you ate that while we're at it. Dime, another Gen Z term. That Gen Alpha claims is out. Guys call girls a dime. As in like a 10 out of 10. Because a dime has 10 cents. Yeah, thanks. We know what that means. Dime also used to mean to rat somebody out. And it can also mean to provide an assist on the basketball court too. So dime is versatile. But according to Gen Alpha, you should not be calling somebody who's attractive a dime. And one more term here. Fatty, P-H-A-T-T-Y. Person in the video says the term is like this. Here's some usage. She's got a fatty, like her backside. Somebody with a, a large backside, as is described in the video. The Gen Alpha kid in the video declared that Gyat, G Y A T, is the new version of Fatty, and that reportedly is shorthand for the G D cuss that I'm not going to say on these airwaves right now. Or Got damn. For those of you who are looking for the PG version of that, Gyat is short for got damn. That's the new version of fatty, which doesn't make sense because the usage is very different. Or maybe you're just saying that as a sort of just a term. Like, wow, you're surprised. Giat. Giat You ate that. Giat, bro. Do I sound like a Gen Alpha-er yet? Yeah, sorry, Gen Z. Your cool terms eventually fall by the wayside as well. Happens to all of us if we get old enough. Gen Z is also... I don't even know if I wanted to get into this story right now. I don't have the proper time to go through this. Actually, you know what? I'm going to change Gen Zers trying to change the definition of virginity, which is just absurd. Instead, we'll talk about Gen Zers apparently covering their noses And family photos now because they don't want to be made fun of for having to pose with their family by their friends. Like you're some colossal loser. If you're posing with your family in a vacation where your mom and dad have probably paid for your trip to some exotic locale, you're going to cover your face up so your friends don't make fun of you for that? Come on now. Gen Z, you're better than that. Have a little bit more self-confidence, Gen Z. I realize that your spirit was completely broken by COVID a few years ago, and you are extremely socially awkward now as a result. But get your hand down and take a picture with your family, please. Of course, 16-year-old me would have been all about this, covering the hand with the covering the face with the hand in a photo. I was all about messing photos up. So, you know what? I give you a little bit of respect for this one, Gen Z. All right, that is it for another edition of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Back tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night, and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.